What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey everybody, this is Mireille Jano, and you're listening to the New Books in African Studies podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Paul Bjork, an associate professor of African history at Texas Tech University and a recent Fulbright scholar at the University of Iringa in Tanzania. He's also the author of Building a Peaceful Nation, Julius Nyerere and the Establishment of Sovereignty in Tanzania, 1960-1964. Today we'll be discussing his Ohio Short Histories of Africa book, Julius Nyerere, uh, published by Ohio University Press. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, so, if you would uh, just just uh, for for the the folks who did not uh, hear our podcast a couple of years ago about your other book, um, if you would just tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write this book. Um, okay, I was uh, I went to Tanzania and first in 1998 um i was volunteering through the lutheran church with a small college there called uh Tumaini university uh in iringa tanzania which is uh now known as uh, the university of iringa and uh and so i i worked there teaching communication skills and uh and some other courses and uh m- among other things, was involved with the journalism students, which got me out to visit different parts of the country. And uh, we took some trips to visit refugee camps and uh, uh, hydropower dams and things like that. So I got to poke around the country a little bit. And uh, in 1998, uh, Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania, died. And uh, and that was a, a major event. And, you know, just hearing people talk about what that meant to the country and so forth. I learned a lot and I should backtracking a little bit. I did get to see Julius Nyerere on two different occasions. Um, on one occasion uh, in this would have been in the last year of his life, he came out to Iringa for the uh, inauguration of a, of a monument to Chief Mkwawa, who was one of the, um, you know, pre-colonial uh, leaders who had fought against the Germans and uh, so they had built a monument. In fact, a friend of mine uh, built a monument out there, a uh, Tanzanian guy. And, uh, and Nyerere came out for the inauguration, which I, really struck me because, you know, he was a long retired president and we didn't know it then, but he was uh, in, in the midst of a, a fairly long battle against uh, leukemia. So he was not in good shape. He was in pain, I think, uh, but he came out for this kind of minor event. Uh, And there was, I don't think he, I can't imagine any benefit he got out of this, apart from the fact that it was a way to honor an old friend who was Chief Mkwawa's grandson, Adam Sapi Mkwawa, who was the, uh, who who had kind of uh, 
gone with him when he uh, dismantled all the privileges of the old chiefs that they had during colonial times. And Adam Sapi had become the Speaker of the Parliament and had been a supporter of the new republic. And, uh, and so I think he was there to honor him. But he came out and he visited the monument and then he gave a speech in what was the old Hey Hey uh, capital. And, uh, and the speech was about more or less on the theme of, uh, you know, in, in Nkwawa's day, we, we fought with spears and, uh, and swords and shields. And uh, today, the weapons we're going to have are uh, science and technology. And so therefore, education is what you're going to need. There's always going to be, you know, someone with a bigger gun than you. But, uh, but in the 21st century, education is, is, uh, is what we need. So it was, it was kind of a theme that he'd been hammering on for, for many, many years. <clears throat> and uh, and it, was a, it was a great speech, full of humor and kind of folksy wisdom and so forth. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was a great little piece of Tanzanian civic culture that I got to witness that day. He came back a few months later for the funeral of Adam Sapi. Uh, Adam Sapi was Muslim, uh, and the funeral was a Muslim funeral. Nyerere was Christian, Catholic. He was there, um, and as well as several other former presidents, because uh, Nyerere retired in 1985, and uh, a couple other presidents had had, uh, had come in since then. Some Muslim, some Christian. So again, you had this this event that was, uh, you know, a tribute to a life well lived in, in Adam Sapi, uh, but one that reflected this Tanzanian civic culture where um, religious and ethnic divisions don't play a major role in that civic culture. So and that was all a privilege. Now, what I was also seeing in the 1990s was a society recovering from an economic crisis. Um, it's you know, very poor society in, in many, many ways. Um, but in the 1990s, you know, you, there had been kind of uh, World Bank-like reforms, um, you know, free market-oriented reforms. And, you know, no matter what your ideology, if you looked at what was happening, what you saw was this new economic dynamism. You saw people opening up small shops and just, uh, you know, having the opportunity to kind of, you know, uh, wheel and deal. Um without the sort of restrictions that there had been in place during a socialist period. <clears throat> and if you look at Tanzania since then, you only see, uh, you know, more benefit from that, I would say. I mean, you know, people who had opened up a small shop are now running a small grocery store and so forth. Now, there's a, a number of other costs for that that we could talk about, but there's no doubt that, uh, that, the, that the Tanzanian economy has been growing significantly uh, and that represents a major, and, and the reasons for that represent a major change from uh, Nyerere's uh, economic policy. So that's that's what I've seen, kind of witnessed in some ways, since 1998 when I first went there. So as you mentioned, your um, your previous book, uh, Building a Peaceful Nation, uh, which covers the period uh, 1960 to 1964, um, you know, it's fairly recent, right? It's a much longer. Uh, uh, treatment of uh, of nation building, so um, so it begs the question: Why why this book, which is which is a which is a you know and short it's a short history? Um, why this book at this time, and and what um, you know in what ways might you see it sort of complementing um, your other work um, and 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 maybe uh, reaching a different audience? 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the first book was, you know, sort of a standard uh, academic monograph, um, you know, but it, I still tried to really make it a history of events, you know, so it's not just kind of theoretical and whatever. And it has some theory behind it in terms of how politics are formed within cultural interactions and how uh, politicians are bound in some ways by the discourse that is created through uh, in, within the culture for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, but it was about a, a detailed version of, of the first years of Tanzanian independence. Um, you know, this book, I was actually invite, invited to write this book uh, by Ohio University Press for this particular series, which is a great series, these Ohio short histories of Africa. Um, and uh, so they had, they invited me to do it kind of even before that other book was, was published. So I started uh, kind of plugging away on this one five years ago uh, when, when they first invited me to do that. And, uh, you know, so that's the main reason. So they, you know, they're, that they're, this particular series has its form and it's meant to be a very readable, uh, hist- you know, well-informed, but readable histories of Africa that, uh, you know, that are not kind of constrained by the, uh, the stylistic tendencies of academic monographs, but can read more like something that you could read in an airplane uh, or, you know, exactly. And so it makes a very good airplane reading because it's, you know, it's 30,000 words, 150 pages or whatever it is. And that's, that's the typical length for this whole series. And so it's a great series, and uh, you know I'd encourage anybody listening to look up the Ohio Short Histories of Africa, which continues to expand. Um, it started as a South African-centric series in in partnership with the South African Press, so there's a lot of South Africa titles on it, but now it's expanding quite a bit to uh, all over the continent. So there's that. Um, but you know the other thing is, I mean, it, it's a great opportunity to kind of write a first draft of of uh, Nureri's biography. You know, biography is not really a typical form for academic uh, publishing. Um, It's more of a popular form, uh, and yet it's a very powerful form because we see it through, we see history through a lens that uh, everyone can appreciate, which is uh, the the life of growth and maturity of of facing, uh, you know, you have your principles, you have your ideas that you're born with, and you're forced to change them as you as you realize the complexities of the world and so forth. I mean, you know, that kind of thing is something we can all appreciate as a narrative style, um, you know. And then this is in this particular case, this is the first researched biography of uh, Julius Nyerere. Um, there may be another one coming out, hopefully fairly soon, um, out of. Uh, you know, by uh, some senior historians in Tanzania who have had very good access to records and so forth, uh, mainly uh, Isa Shibji and um, often, uh, I'm forgetting now her first name. Well, either you can edit this, but oh well, um, Isa Shibji is is leading the the project on a a new biography. So anyway, so there might be a new biography coming out out of Tanzania, you know, a longer, more well-researched one. But this is still the first one that's out, and uh, it does represent original research. There's a lot of material in there from archives that no one else has looked at, from interviews with people that I did, um, and just you know, compiling uh, this story in a way that uh, no one's done before. 
Now it is based on a lot of other excellent work, uh, you know, scholarly work on Tanzania. And uh, so it's well-informed, but kind of theory and, and academic uh, priorities take a back seat to the story. And I'm, I'm happy with that. And I'm happy with the writing. And it was a great opportunity to do this book and to write it in this way, because in some ways, this is this was always my goal. When I left Tanzania, my goal was like, well, you know, I know the language. I kind of know my way around. I know something about the country. No one, I can't find any other biography of Mirere. I should write one. <laughs> it only took 15 years, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good one. And it's a, it kind of achieved that goal. And it's readable. You know, this is something that will get read and uh, it's affordable. It's, you know, they're $15. So, yeah, look them up. It's a good series. And this is this is a good uh, I'm, I'm really happy with the way the book turned out. Yeah, this is. A, yeah. So uh, um, I would uh, I would definitely agree um, with that, um, that that it is very uh, accessible, very, very readable. Um so let's let's get into um, talking about the book. You, you divide divide it up into uh, six chapters. The first uh, chapter of which um, is titled "Mwalimu Nyerere: A Study in Leadership," and and in this chapter you sort of uh, have this helpful, I think, portrait of really the central aims of his um, political life, right? Namely, to cultivate uh, this sort of um, inclusive um, political establishment. Um, and and you also touch on um, his ambitions for uh, regional leadership, Pan Africanism, so on. Um, and so, you know, I wonder if you could sort of uh, talk a bit about that that particular frame for uh, for a biography, right? Uh, the this um, broader idea of his um, of his leadership and what that meant to. Um, what would eventually be Tanzania to the region and more broadly to um, the subcontinent. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I debated calling that uh, section and the, you know, Julius Nyerere and the perils of leadership. Um, and I, I think the, that phrase comes up in the, in the text of it. Um, you know, I think that's one thing that strikes me is that this is a portrait of a leader and someone who took the lead and took the risks of leadership, you know, and there, you, you can say that for lots of people. Um, but I think it's a nice portrait because, you know, we think of good leaders and bad leaders, or we think of, uh, or sometimes people would debate whether leadership even exists and, you know, people just kind of go along with uh, social forces and so forth. Uh, but there's no doubt that, you know, Nyerere in his youth, formed uh, a sense of what should happen um, with African society in the 20th century, um, both, you know, not only a push for independence, but also a push for a, a social structure that would, um, that would be equitable and would uh, bring out the best in people and, uh, and, and unify people. And, you know, those are ideas that he was formulating uh, in his intellectual upbringing. And then, you know, he had the chance to implement those um, through, you know, an institutional structure, which is to say the governmental structure, uh, which he had then a big hand in reforming uh, after independence. And so he took, he took the risks to lead and said, we're going to go down uh, more or less the path that uh, I think is best. And, you know, he, 
he took advice to some extent, but in the end, he was he could be pretty stubborn about his own ideas. Um, and that's part of the perils of leadership. You know, you, he set a course and said, well, I'm going to follow it. And it was not a course defined by uh, an ambition for self-enrichment or a crass ambition for power. It was a course defined by an ambition for the people for whom he was given responsibility. It was a course defined by a, a serious attempt to um, to do something good in the world. Uh, he said before independence, he said, the Africa we must create is an Africa uh, toward which people will look and say, that is where that is the place, continent where people are truly free. That is the continent of hope for the human race. You know, so that, that's a pretty big ambition, the continent of hope for the human race. And, you know, I think in the, in the popular lens, uh, Africa usually and still represents just the opposite of that, right? It tends to represent disaster. Uh, and yet, I think there, if you meet young people in Africa today, uh, especially when in a, in a time when uh, Af- you know economic growth and and uh, and and to some extent uh, political freedoms have been expanding in the 21st century, there's extraordinary hope uh, in that in, in that continent for the future, but extraordinary challenges. So you know, Nyerere faced all these challenges. He faced the same challenges that, you know, uh, all the other major um, leaders in Africa faced during those times. And he and very few others, you know, kind of survived without being either overthrown or, or seeing the country uh, fall into civil war or something. You know, there were lots of uh, problems that could arise. And, you know, this is the era of the Cold War, the era of decolonization. So there's a million challenges. So I, I just tried to think about that, that, you know, what does it mean to lead? And, and to realize that to lead is not to do everything perfectly. To lead is not to know that everything you do will turn out right. To lead is to take a set of principles and try to pursue them with a group of people. And uh, that's what he did. Um, well, that leads us nicely into um, maybe a discussion of, our, of your um, second chapter, which which is is really sort of the, the, the sort of um, hardcore of the of the of the biography, right? So this is uh, coming of age in an African colony, and this covers the period of 1922 when Nyerere is born uh, to 1953. Um, and I think um, I was struck by a couple of things in this chapter. One that um, considering you know he died in in 99 at uh, 77, which um, increasingly you know, sounds like a like a younger, like not a, like not a not a um, very old age, um, but he accomplishes so much in a in a in a short time, right? He doesn't start a formal education until relatively late at twelve. He um, is sent off to um, you know sort of start basic literacy. I don't think he. Um, um, if I'm recalling correctly, he didn't vi- visit Dar es Salaam until he was in his 20s. And yet, you know, the, the, everything that transpired in, in, say, that, you know, 50, 60 year span is 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 really um, extraordinary. Um, so I wonder if you would. So, the, so as I said, that that was something that I was struck by. Another another thing, and this touches a bit on what you what you were just saying, is that, um, you know, part of charting his leadership course was his, you know, 
becoming familiar with um, uh, European philosophy among among that, the, that of uh, John Stuart Mill. And so I just wonder if you sort of talk about that, the sort of um, uh, some of the biographical details of his early life, as well as this um, merging uh, philosophical framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, that's one of the challenges of writing this book. Uh, you know, it's a short history of Africa, and you're meant to write, you know, an entire lifetime of uh, a very full lifetime of a major figure in African history, which will inevitably then entail uh, a lot of details about the country that he led. Um, and so, you know, that to to condense that was a major challenge, um, more of a challenge than the lifetimes of maybe some of the other figures like uh, uh, Patrice Lumumba or Thomas Sankara, who didn't see such a long career in power, tragically. But on, on the other hand, uh, not quite as challenging as you know the history of South Sudan on the same series, which covers, uh, you know, which goes all the way back into at least the medieval ages and <laughs> brings it all the way up to the present. Uh, so that's an extraordinarily ambitious uh, one, you know, version of these Ohio short histories. So that's the challenge with this series. And, uh, and so you have to make choices. And one of the choices I made was I really wanted to do a biography. Now it's, you know, by and large, it's a political biography focusing on his political life. And, you know, his life was filled with politics. But I tried to pick up details about his uh, personal life here and there. And, and get a sense of his personality and, and the formation of his character um, throughout his life. And so there's always little episodes where I try to get a sense of his personality. Um, and, you know, and so that's why I spent this, this chapter really, you know, trying to go into some detail about his, you know, intellectual formation. And, you know, one of the critiques of the book is that you don't, you're not until, you know, th- a quarter or a third through the book that you actually get into the story of Tanzania but I think that's inevitable. This is a biography. So, and, you know, so at the same time, I'm also trying to use each chapter to talk about the bigger picture. And so part of this chapter is just also talking about um, the colony uh, growing up in, uh, in, for his lifetime, a British colony and the background of that. And so I tried to talk about indirect rule and, and some of those other kinds of themes in there. And he was the son of a, a you know, a, son of a fourth wife or whatever of, of a minor chief in uh, in Tanzania. And so as a result, he got the chance for education um, and be just for that mere reason that that was part of the indirect rule system was to, you know, help train children of chiefs because they wanted to maintain um, the ostensible traditional authorities as agents of colonial power. And so his father was fortunate to uh, be seen as a fairly genial old man by the, uh, by the British and, uh, and thereby um, he sort of fortunately got a chance for education a little bit late because he wasn't uh, the most prominent child in the family. Um, But he was seen as maybe a good companion for one of his uh, half brothers who uh, was the one who was kind of designated. So he got the chance for education, but, you know, and I also try to talk about is that, you know, he like, his whole generation sort of came of age in rural areas in a time when there, you know, the, the, the colony was a fairly distant entity. And uh, so it's a fairly traditional lifestyle that 
in which he was brought up. And you have a whole, you know, you have a whole group of people who are born basically before colonial power and die in, uh, in the independent age. And so that's really defines the 20th century in Africa was this sort of brief colonial generation. Uh, and it's really, it's just a generation, but it did have a major cultural impact. Um, and, and because it's, it's not merely a, a matter of conquest, but it's, it's a matter of um, parts of Africa that had been fairly isolated from the you know, big currents of what's happening in the world to becoming part and parcel of those currents. And so then Africa, because of communication technologies and other things, becomes a part of a, of a much bigger world and therefore has to, people have to think about what that means and how to, um, how to take on the philosophies, the lifestyles, the, uh, the, the ideologies of people in other parts of the world. So that becomes something that, you know, affects Nyerere. And, and he was obviously, a, he was a great student. Uh, he loved to read, you know, and, and that first chapter is based to some extent on uh, Tom Maloney's uh, biography, you know, portrait of Nyerere as a young man. But also, you know, I interviewed people in his village. I interviewed his family. I interviewed uh, one of his teachers. Um, I, I looked at his uh, school records in, in, uh, in Edinburgh, mainly, I didn't, I didn't see any of his school records in Tanzania, per se, um, and, uh, and elsewhere. So, you know, he, he does well in school. He's said to have, you know, already at a young, at a young age, been reading a lot. Um, he gets a chance to go off to um, Makarere uh, Teachers College at that time, what is now Makarere University in Uganda. That was the main institute of higher education. And there he encountered uh, John Stuart Mill, and apparently he also encountered Karl Marx uh, at um, Makarere in the 1940s. <clears throat> so, you know, he starts to really wrap his head around, you know, major philosophical ideas. And he's certainly influenced by John Stuart Mill. You can see that in his writing. Um, and he wins an award, actually, for... Uh, for a very Millsian essay uh, that win, wins a, a writing award for East Africa. Um, but he also, there's a letter to the newspaper, which actually James Brennan was the one who uh, found it. Um, he writes a letter to the Tanzanian uh, Tanganyika Standard newspaper saying that in 1942, saying that he thought that uh, socialism would have to be the uh, economic policy for a modern Africa because, as he put it, Africans are nat naturally socialist. Um, you know, so here we have in during, while well, he's still at Makarere and he's participating in kind of debate societies and things, he's already thinking about what becomes very defining for him, which is that, um, that African culture has an inherent kind of egalitarianism to it, uh, a sense of shared um, economic resources that he, that he thought needed to be part of uh, a... A, a new African um, social system. And that, that's a core idea for him for the rest of his life. And so you can see that already forming before he even goes to Edinburgh, where he uh, reads more on Marx. And we should recall that in the 1940s, you know, uh, the U.S. and uh, Britain were allies with the Soviet Union. Marxism seemed to have a lot of uh, hopefulness to it there. You know, Marxism meant something very different uh, in some ways in the 1940s than it did during the cold war. So, you know, he, he's formulating his ideas and, uh, you know, and, and thinking, uh, forward about what African society should look like in the future. So, you know, these are some formative times in which we can also 
grasp his introduction to this bigger world. And that's, that's something that he can, he's just a representative of. There were people across the continent having that same encounter. Um, and I think as Frederick Cooper put it, you know, uh, young African leaders saw their, their task as combining the best of European and African culture into a new synthesis um, that could work for the future. And indeed, that's also a phrase that Nyerere uses. We need a, a new synthesis uh, for the future. So anyway, so that's a little bit that kind of intellectual formation. I mean, we can go into a lot of detail, but he goes to Edinburgh University. Um, uh, he's He's got a close relationship with some mentors in the Catholic Church um, who are kind of progressive-minded Catholics uh, who think in very similar terms uh, that he does. And that's part of his intellectual formation as well. And uh, he comes back finally from Edinburgh and uh, he gets married um, and goes up back to his home village and says, you know, I needed to take off my Scottish suit and uh, and stomp around in the mud in bare feet for a little while to get to literally get his feet back on the ground. Um, and so he builds a house for he and his wife back in their village, you know, with mud bricks and uh, and thinks about what to do next. Well, and, and what comes next um, then is, is uh, his sort of election first as president of the uh, Tanganyika African Association, the TAA, which uh, which ends up being sort of a forerunner to TANU, right, which is the Tanganyika African uh, National Union. Um, and, uh, and this, among other things, is uh, this period from about... Um, 1954 to 1964. This is the third chapter of the book. Um, it's also the the period again that your previous uh, book focuses on. Um, is is interesting because it it sort of is is the initial sort of um, fruition of of so much of what you're you're talking about. One of the things that I think is interesting um, about this is sort of from its inception, um, Tanu's inception. That is. Um, Nyerere seems to uh, say that its 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 main mission is toward working um, is is to working towards self government, right? So there are sort of the seeds of um, of decolonization that are that are sort of mixed in with with everything else he's been um, learning and thinking about. So I wonder if you if you uh, would sort of talk about that, um, as well as this, uh, the other uh, key task that he mentions um, of Tanya, which is to, to uh, build up a national consciousness in, in anticipation of independence. Yep. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a very dense chapter. Uh, a lot happens in that chapter. And, and I, you know, I was deliberate in having a chapter that bridged the moment of independence rather than um, sort of ending a chapter at independence and starting a new one, because I, I think you know, it's a long process. And, and I, I, I do think that the, the kind of, um, you know, I did kind of split this up kind of by decades, but I had long thought through what is the chronology here? How, you know, what is the chronology? Even before I got contracted to do this, I was thinking about what is the chronology for Nureri's life? And, and that's part of the reason I wrote my first book the way it was, which also bridged the uh, decolonization moment. Um, because, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's a process. It's a process of first in this, the chapter we're looking at in the biography of first even formulating what is the task at hand. Uh, and there's lots of good recent scholarship on, you know, how many different kind of imagined futures there were 
um, in the 1950s in Africa. I mean, it could have gone so many different directions. And, uh, and, and people were, and not only could it, I mean, maybe, maybe historical constraints kind of put it on the path that it was, but, but that doesn't mean that people didn't imagine other things. There were lots of, you know, different imagined futures that uh, incorporated everything from kind of being part of some sort of bigger um, union with the European colonizing power or to being, you know, smaller uh, pieces that more aligned with ethnic or pre-colonial um, polities. So there were lots of different possibilities for the future. And, um, and so that's, that's what's happening in the 1950s is formulating that. Um, but then, you know, once independence comes, then you have this process of kind of solidifying what is this thing going to be? Can it work? What do we do with all those other imagined futures that are now going to have to be kind of shoved aside or, or silenced in some way? Um, so, so that to me, these the, the nothing particular ends at the moment of independence, but rather you have a kind of process happening. So, so within that, yeah, I mean, Yuri comes back. He had been a part of this Tanganyikan African Association, which is kind of a civil servants association um, uh, for a while. But it is one of the few groups that's non-ethnic, non-religious, uh, so that the members of this organization come from across the country. They're, uh, they're, they all have a facility with English. Um, they, uh, they can, and, and, you know, they're from different religious backgrounds and so forth. And some are business people. Um, so he gets involved with that and pretty quickly, uh, he becomes part, there's a kind of younger group that wants to push this organization a little harder and be a little bit more, uh, con combative, confrontative with this organization. So he, he works with them and, you know, he is pretty closely involved with the process of changing it from the Tanganyikan African Association to the Tanganyikan African National Union. And the insertion of that word national is a signal of their intention. Uh, they're going to create a nation out of the colonial entity Tanganyika. And um, this is 1954. Uh, you know, so they're aware of what's going on elsewhere. Ghana is, you know, obviously on the cusp already of nationhood uh, by the mid-1950s under the leadership of Kwame Nkrumah. And I've only recently realized that actually uh, in, in uh, something that Nyerere wrote before going to Edinburgh, the, which was an extension of that essay he wrote on John Stuart Mill and whatever, he quoted um, a Ghanaian author, uh, I want to say James Agre, and he, there's a story that Agre had been using um, in the 1920s and 30s about uh, sort of an eagle brought up by um, ducks or something like that and didn't, or chickens and didn't realize he was an eagle. And, you know, so, so Nyerere is, he's, he's obviously, he had been paying attention to bigger conversations across the African continent. So, so he's, so Tan, Tan, Tanganyika is set upon this course uh, for independence. They think of it as happening maybe 25 years in the future. And it comes, uh, you know, within a decade. Um, and so then there's the whole process of that. And yeah, he, I think Nyerere demonstrates himself as a sharp, pragmatic politician who gives great speeches and can mobilize people, kind of learn some more colloquial Swahili because of uh, his relationships with others in the movement, including famously Bibi Titi Mohammed, uh, a, a leader of what becomes the, the Tanu Women's League uh, or... Uh, women's branch and uh and she's a kind of 
downtown Dar es Salaam businesswoman kind of uh, person um, who has this real kind of uh, lusty Swahili. And uh, Nureri picks up some good turns of phrase from her and others. Uh, so you see the formation of, of the people who then become part of this movement. Um, and I try to emphasize that, look, Nureri was, he was a great leader. I mean, in terms of just the skills of a leader, but he was formed by the people around him. He was formed by the culture in which he was uh, participating. And, uh, you know, and, and there's, without that group of people, a multi-religious, multi-ethnic group of people, you know, he, he would not have been able to do what he did and might not have even imagined doing what he did. Um, so that's an important aspect of that. But there's a nice little process towards what becomes a peaceful independence. He's very proud that it was a, a peaceful process. Um, he, he has a, a, a deep um, uh, trepidation about violence and that uh, he, he's not really very motivated by the kind of heroic tropes of, of violence, um, even though we'll see aspects of that. But he, he's really cautious about violence because he's, he knows the cost that any violence, no matter how well-intentioned, is going to have cost not only in human lives, but in a pattern of violence that's going to follow. And, uh, and that's what he really wants to avoid. So independence comes, uh, and uh, in the end, um, the British, you know, th by this time, the British are kind of uh, have a policy of, of, uh, of decolonization. And, and uh, you know, I, they are, they do contribute usefully to that process, um, you know, within the constraints of politics and culture and, and prejudices and so forth. But it is a, a, a joint process, and, uh, and, the, and the British governor, the last governor, uh, Turnbull, um, you know, he had experience, he had seen what happened in Kenya with the Mau Mau, and, uh, and so he wants to work with Nyerere, and Nyerere sees him as someone he can work with, and, and, and they move, um, you know, fairly expeditiously towards independence. So then Uri has, he's, now he has a nation to deal with. And, and this is, he realizes very early on, you know, we need more than just a constitutional structure. We need more than just a, uh, you know, a, a pattern of voting um, in order to establish a functional and peaceful government. Um, and so he starts to kind of think about the idea of, um, of a national ethic, as he calls it, a kind of national philosophy. And so he begins to formulate this, you know, famously, he, uh, he, within six weeks of independence, he resigns. <laughs> he was prime minister. He resigns and leaves that task to uh, a, a Muslim guy who had worked with the uh, movement for quite a while, Rashid Kawawa. And that's a remarkable move in and of itself, that someone who has just led a country to independence says, well, okay, you guys take on the government. I'm going to go rebuild the party. I'm going to go talk to the people up country and see what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And so forth, and it's you know it's a gutsy move, um, and it's it says a lot about him, I think. Anyway, so he goes up country, and he he runs across this, uh, this a term called ujama, which uh, Emma Hunter uh, had, was the one who tracked down this book. It's a kind of obscure little book written by a guy in northern uh, Tanganyika um, about uh, the Chaga group up there and, and their culture and so forth. And he coined a, a term called ujama, which is, you know, means familyhood vaguely, uh, and says this is this is what we're all about. Now his ujama was more literally about familyhood within Chaga culture, and Yerere takes that 
phrase and and I'm and it's it's clear that he builds a relationship with this author and that author then becomes kind of an advisor to the government and, and is on various kinds of committees and things after that. Um, and Yereri then builds upon this phrase to um, to create this idea of uh, ujamaa as as familyhood as as the basis of of a national philosophy that the nation is a family of some kind, and and that that resonates with people. But he also translates ujamaa as socialism, uh, you know. And so here he has this chance to to start integrating this philosophy that he'd been thinking about for a long, long time. Both sides of it, really. I mean, you see, you see in his earlier writings some of the same thinking about kind of the personal nature of pre-colonial polities and and how to translate those kinds of uh, personalistic kinds of politics into a national politics. So he takes this on and and he kind of creates a language of politics. And you know what what I don't get to talk about much in this short book is you know philosoph or I don't know theoretically how powerful that is to that when you can define how we talk about politics, you've really constrained the vision. I mean, you, you've you've done a lot, and that's a big part of his leadership is the power of his tongue, the power of language that Nyerere has. And, and that gets him by, you know, where others may have turned to more coercive methods. And he does turn to coercive methods, and I'll, we'll come back to that. But, um, yeah, so there, you know, then there was a series of kind of crises of decolonization, um, which are not atypical, uh, you know, the army mutinied at some point. Um, there was the problem of, of trying to um, reform the civil service and, you know, get more uh, Africans as to be trained in and part of the civil service. Uh, Nyerere eventually decides that, typical of him, Africanization it was important as a way to reform things. But in the end, he says, we're going to do localization, which is to say, as long as you're a Tanzanian, Tanganyikan citizen, it doesn't matter what race you are, uh, we'll count that as being, you know, part of the local administration. Um, and that, that works fine because he, they kind of Africanization had been accomplished in most parts of the civil service by that time within a couple of years of independence. Um, but not so much in the army, which was still under British leadership. So the army mutinies, and that's a crisis that has to be dealt with. Um, and then there's some Cold War politics in Zanzibar. There's a revolution in, in Zanzibar um, that really overthrew the old regime there. Uh, it was a violent revolution. Um, and that Zanzibar is just off the Tanganyikan coast. Um, Nyerere then <laughs> proceeds to, he and others then start to think about what to do. And they, they kind of, they joined Zanzibar to Tanganyika, create a new country called Tanzania. Um, this, uh, you know, was not an uncontested process uh, and remains a kind of uh, uh, hot point in, in Tanzanian politics because of, you know, it, it's not all that clear that one sovereign country was, you know, just disappeared into another one. So, you know, that, but that has a lot to do with Cold War politics um, and Yereri's concern that you know, either the Americans or the Russians or the Chinese or someone would more or less take over Zanzibar and then become a kind of point for fighting Cold War battles in East Africa. And he wanted to avoid that. So, you know, as far as he was concerned, it was better to have um, even an awkward union as long as that brought Zanzibar within the orbit of uh, local politics. 
So there's all of that. And I, and I consider that part and parcel of this longer kind of decade long process of decolonization, because after 1964, uh, several things are in place. One, you have this thing called Tanzania. Zanzibar is now a part of it. Um, and there's a sense of sovereign control over this area. Um, they have, there's a, a kind of philosophical orientation that's been defined that works well within the kind of the, the Cold War um, philosophical divide over socialism and capitalism and so forth. And Urari has defined his own uh, perspective within that. Um, he's dealt with some of the institutional issues of creating a new, you know, bureaucracy and military and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, and then he also puts in place a one party state. Um, and, you know, he sees the one party state as useful for a number of reasons. Now, even before independence, he had suggested, you know, we, we probably should have a one party state for 10 years after independence or 15 years after independence is what he said. Um, and I think with the idea that, look, it's going to be necessary to make sure we have a unified and functioning nation before we submit ourselves to the uh, the ambiguities of electoral politics. And I'm sure as Americans, we can appreciate that today, given how bitter and dysfunctional our politics um, are. You can imagine what that would be for a country with uh, nascent institutions. Um you know, and so, and then with the mutiny and other things, the one-party state seems like um, a stabilizing move, and perhaps it was, but it, obviously it has its other costs in terms of um, cutting off uh, political discussion, cutting off political, you know, participation in various ways, you know, and and all the all the uh, you know negative aspects that come with um, a one-party state. But may I leave that there because that becomes more important in subsequent chapters. Yeah, I was about to say, right, and that and that touches on uh, some of the central, con well, the, perhaps the central contradiction, um, both in the book and, and in its political life, right, this idea of the creation of a peaceful, stable state, um, sort of necessarily involving uh, repressive, uh, repressive tactics. But um, one of the, one of the things um, uh that also emerges uh, in this chapter and in this in this period is is the Arusha Declaration, and I wonder if you um, and that's since that's something else that casts a pretty long shadow. I wonder if you would um, kind of talk about that and 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 maybe as a bridge into um, the penultimate chapter of the book, which is uh, talking about a sort of uh, continental um, conflicts. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, okay. So yeah, the Rusha Declaration is central to the subsequent chapter. Um, it's, it's Nyerere is announcing um, a much more activist approach towards socialism, not merely as kind of a guiding philosophy, but as something that's going to be implemented in a fairly radical way in policy. Um, and I think the I think the jury the jury is still out on what that's going to mean, and that will this is at this point in the in the book, you know, we're getting into periods where we have a, a kind of scattering of monographs on different topics, but we don't really have a very comprehensive view of um, of I don't think Tanzanian political history, you know, after 1965. Um, but we have some good monographs that give us some good insights into 
uh, the formation and effect of various policies. So the Arusha Declaration um, is a declaration of a socialist orientation. They're gonna, he said they're going to nationalize uh, government, you know, the major industries. They're going to pursue, uh, you know, kind of a state-led economy. And uh, and they he puts a bunch of constraints on political leadership, known as the leadership code, that uh, political leaders uh, can't own other businesses. They can't own uh, rental properties. Um, obviously, they they can't participate in in various kinds of corrupt activities. And so he's really trying to reconstrain not merely corruption. He's very concerned about corruption, and that's been part of the Tanu you know creed since before independence that we're going to fight against corruption. Um, so he's concerned about that. And corruption, you know, I would argue, is derives from the fact of a state that is not doesn't have a deep cultural legitimacy. So that the independent state is derived from the colonial state. It, it doesn't have the set of traditions, rituals, ideologies that um, that really bond people to a, a loyalty to the state in quite the same way. And as a result, habits of corruption um, in Tanzania, you know, despite the fact of Nyerere's own integrity and the integrity of, of at least a, a good portion of his cabinet and the major leadership, these are not dishonest people. Um, and so the fact that corruption arises, I think, is another uh, kind of one of the contradictions that we face. So he's concerned about that, but he's also concerned more broadly about not merely kind of bribe taking, but the deeper sort of corruption that we encounter in our own society today, which is that industry is so ingrained in the process of selecting politicians that, you know, we have a lot of politicians that we tend to think, you know, they, they are more representatives of certain industries than they are representatives of people. And, uh, and that's Nyerere's concern. And so he wants to make sure that politicians don't, you know, have these divided loyalties. Now, I think some of the effects of this policy are going to be fairly negative in the sense that if you have a politician whose uh, salary is worth less and less because of exchange rate concerns and so forth, they may be more and more tempted to involve themselves in corrupt activities. And we definitely see that by the 70s. So, yeah, I don't know that it was a good idea, but the, the idea behind it was to put the economy at work for the people as a whole and not for certain groups and, uh, and make sure that politicians represent people and not industries. Um, so they nationalized much of the economy and, uh, and, and eventually then start to nationalize even the rural sector by creating Ujamaa villages, creating uh, kind of communal villages where people do communal work on communal farms and so forth. Um, so this, again, this is a set of ideas that comes out of a longstanding philosophical orientation. This is part and parcel of what I would consider his leadership, that he chooses a path and pursues it and mobilizes people towards that. Uh, figures out a strategy to implement that. Um, it, again, his, the power of his tongue, the Arusha Declaration, is, is a magnificent, it's a powerful statement. There's a lot of rhetorical um, meat in this uh, kind of policy-oriented statement. It becomes influential across Africa in a variety of ways. Um, you know, and part of his concern is not merely economic. I think there's another, there's another aspect to this, which is, um, which is political, uh, in taking and this and I think other African leaders do this as well, you know, for good or bad reasons. But in taking control of industry, you know, that's a that's also a major control point. It's a political control point. You have control over people through control over the economy. 
And I think he's, he's concerned. Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown in 1966. Um, and, uh, you know, even uh, Uganda is seeing some political crises around the same time. Uh, you know, he's this, this control orient. There is a significant aspect of control orientation here, which is not merely, uh, you know, uh, kind of self-serving. I mean, it's not just that he's, he's a glutton for power. It's that he's concerned that uh, he's worried about losing control of the country in one way or the other. Now, you can see that where that joins. I mean, at some point, your worry about losing control does become a self-serving kind of orientation. And there's a lot of African leaders who stick around for decades and decades because they're, they have told themselves that they're indispensable to the nation. And so you know, Nyerere is in some ways tempted by that. But, you know, but he proceeds with this. Um, and, you know, in fact, in the 1975 elections, he tells uh, the party that, look, you guys shouldn't get used to, you know, having the same president forever. You should start to think about what it's going to mean to have another president. So he's already, you know, 15 years after independence, as he said, look, let's we, we have, have to think about different leadership um, eventually. Um, he's, he doesn't retire until 1985. And, you know, we can look at those reasons. But 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 there is this concern over over how to create an institutional structure that will keep the centripetal forces, right, from tearing the country apart in one way or the other. Obviously, the Congo had seen, you know, a tremendous uh, upheaval right next door. So there's all of these concerns. But, well, so the result of the Arusha Declaration, however, was to nationalize industry. And what we face in the subsequent chapter as you mentioned about kind of a continent in crisis is, you know, by the seventies, it was already clear that nationalized industries have a lot of deep set kind of inherent problems. The politicization of economic of economics uh, inevitably creates distortions. Um, you have industries that are then, uh, you know, if, even if they're being run well, which, you know, the, their profits are being, um, diverted into the creating new industries, so not necessarily being invested in the, that same industry. Um, there's a huge possibility for corruption, obviously, when you have bureaucrats running these companies and having opportunities to siphon off, uh, you know, international investment and so forth. Um, so you, what you wind up with is a whole bunch of dysfunctional industries. They don't work well. The government is then, for political reasons, trying to uh, define prices. And I, I've, I, this summer, I looked at some documents. I mean, it's, it's crazy. They had a price board that was looking at the prices for every single darn thing. I mean, different sizes of soap. And they're trying to set the prices for these things. And it's, it's, just, it's not related to market forces. And an overburdened bureaucracy just cannot manage all the little decisions you're going to try to make with a centralized economy. So the economy becomes more and more dysfunctional. Uh, the Ujamaa villages, um, you know, are meant to jumpstart agricultural production because there's this major uh, balance of payments problem because, you know, starting all these new industries is going to require importation of, of, uh, of industrial goods. And though Tanzania doesn't produce those, so they have to import them at great cost. And Yuri says in, in the Arusha Declaration, he says, if we're not careful, what we're going to wind up with is the exploitation of the rural areas by the urban areas who are going to be the ones who benefit from, you know, so he's, he's very prescient. He understands the structural problems 
but and the policy and so he tries to focus on the rural by creating Ujamaa villages and 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 he's going to jumpstart uh, you know cash crop production and so forth in order to build up this industry, and it doesn't work. The Ujamaa villages do not produce more than they were producing before. They become in in some cases dependent on government aid, uh, and and they're just people are not that motivated for this communal production for all the kind of basic human reasons that we can imagine. So. He's totally devoted towards this policy for good reasons, uh, and it's a disaster economically. So, uh, and that the result of that is to create a more deep set political crisis. So, by the 1970s, you have uh, one, you have a bunch of bureaucrats who are uh, on tighter and tighter personal budgets and trying to f- kind of figure out how to scramble up some other kinds of income. Um, you know, they might have land in the family and other things that they can produce some crops. If they can travel abroad, they can buy stuff and bring it back and sell it at uh, kind of black market prices. Um, they, in, in other kind, you know, in other ways of siphoning off money and getting, you know, sitting fees for parliamentarians and getting a, uh, you know, a, a um, an, you know, a, what do you call it? A stipend for having a car, you know, all kinds of different things. And so it, it does become sort of more deeply corrupt in some ways as a result of the very policies he put in place to, to fight corruption. And, and that's, there's a kind of tragedy in that. Um, and then the other result of all of this is a deepening kind of political crisis and just the habits of a one-party state. As much as Nirere tries to encourage debate and say, look, we can always debate these things. And he puts himself out with the students or, with other politicians says, let's debate the issues. And he's, he's open to hearing criticism. The newspapers maintain still a fairly robust kind of uh, debate about things. So this is not just, you know, a mere police state, but if over in overstepping certain types of bounds, there are political prisoners. And, uh, and there's no doubt that, you know, this, the police state was getting increasingly um, repressive. And, and some of this is, come from the top in the sense that Nureri is trying to retain control. Some of this is just, it's sort of built into the dynamics of a police state that, you know, every point of control becomes a point of kind of, uh, kind of resentment. And, uh, and so we see the emergence of some, I think, brutality in, in terms of the treatment of some political prisoners. I don't think it's, I don't think it's as bad as, as some people would claim. Uh, you know, I think uh, it was, it was fairly confined, and I think Nureri still tried to um, keep some sort of tally and some sort of control over that, you know, people should not be die in prison and so forth. But, um, but I think it, it, it was a police state and people were living in kind of a paranoid uh, mode of living by the late 70s. Now, what we also have to understand, and I should, we'll stop and let you get to another question in a moment. But um, what we also need to understand is that, yes, there is this whole kind of internal issue about the the socialist policy, the aims of that socialist policy, the attempt to control corruption, the attempt to control, uh, uh, you know, um, insurgency or, or, or control any kind of rebellion against this government. There's that. But part of this is also that Tanzania is kind of on a permanent war footing in the sense that you know, it's been supporting uh, the liberation movements, the movements against uh, minority governments in Southern Africa, 
um, ever since independence. And, and this has been a core of its policy. Nyerere states, and this is repeated by bureaucrats within the government, saying that our independence is not secure until uh, the rest of Africa is under majority rule. So they've been supporting all these movements. And as a result, there's all this kind of uh, not only Cold War intrigue, but Southern African intrigue going on. There are attempts by the South Africans and others to infiltrate uh, Tanzania, to undermine the liberation movements, to undermine Nyerere in various ways, or his government. And so that they are on a war footing. There is a certain kind of paranoia uh, about um, foreigners and so forth that you know, maybe is is part and parcel of this war footing. And so I think that's also fueling this police state mentality. But, you know, so that that's kind of the situation in the 1970s. Well, so, and then, and that sort of nicely brings us to um, maybe what is the inevitable outcome of, of being on a sort of, as you put it, a permanent war footing, right? So um, into this overburdened bureaucracy, um, you know, domestic uh, political uh, problems, um, and and you know, there is concerns, ongoing concerns about um, uh, regional stability and 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 um, the security of Tanzania within that. Um, the the so enter into that the the war with Idi Amin, right? So um, you know, major consequences, yeah. I mean, I, so I kind of I frame that within this whole idea of a continent in crisis. I think there are structural issues which I'm talking about here, which which Tanzania was facing in terms of its relationship to the broader global economy. And Yerari talks about this in terms, he says, in in the terms of trade. And he says the terms of trade have turned against Africa in some significant ways. And and uh, the bigger world has only one answer to all of this. And uh, and he says in this this is this is undermining our uh, economic plans. That that's the way he perceives it. Now, again, economists could argue about incentives and all, a million different things, but he he perceives something that profoundly unfair about the global uh, economic structure. And and I'm and uh, and I'm sure if we look carefully, we would find some structural reasons that that we might def- be able to say are unfair in in certain types of ways. Um, but again, that's a very complex issue. But the, the whole continent is, is is facing a similar kind of economic crisis, regardless of their uh, of their economic policy or economic orientation. And you also have a, a parallel, which is you know the the ongoing kind of crisis of of institutional government in Af- in much of sub-Saharan much of Africa, where you have you know coup, coup d'etats and and over governments being overthrown here and there from time to time and and. You know the the turn towards military power uh, to either resolve a po- crisis of of democratic government or to just overwhelm a democratic government with a, a military takeover. So I mean, you have that pattern, and that pattern touches pretty close to Tanzania. And you know, Nyerere again because of the institutional structure he had created maintains a stable government and uh, and is you know. Is is able to continually be effective um, despite all of these uh, this kind of crisis. So uh, you know during the 1970s, um, you have the, the economic crisis has already started, and, and I've seen uh, Bank of Tanzania reports that are pretty honest, and they say, look, we have deep. This is not just about a drought or or, or a balance of payments problems. 
there's a there's some structural issues in the economy that are weighing on us and that can't be resolved, you know, just by sort of uh, waiting it out. Um, now that advice becomes is 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 uh, becomes ideologically politicized and is not taken up by Nyerere, um, but the advice is already there. The the crisis is already there. Now, in a parallel way, Uganda has entered into a much deeper crisis. Its you know government was overthrown. Uh, by Idi Amin, uh, who is, you know, kind of one of the great villains of modern African history. Uh, and, you know, the, the last King of Scotland, the movie, uh, is a, you know, slightly fictionalized version. And, and you don't, you, you can leave aside the details, but the portrayal by Forrest Whitaker of Idi Amin is really quite magnificent in terms of uh, this, the charisma and and kind of fearsome charisma of this a kind of wild character. So Uganda is, is in a crisis and, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for how a character like Idi Amin comes to power. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just on his own merits. He's kind of brought to power as a mean, as a tool in the hands of people who oppose the former president. But anyway, his, he, he has a totally corrupt regime. He's, he's not a philosopher. Um, like many of the great leaders of modern Africa, he's, he's a soldier. And, uh, and so it becomes corrupt and brutal and, uh, and, and he kicks, you know, he, he tries to blame it on the Asians. This is a longstanding issue in East Africa that you have a, a, a minority community of Indians mainly who are called Asians in that context. And, uh, they, are, they were mainly in, in business. They came over because of the colonial, they were part of the British, uh, broader, uh, imperial, um, or uh, community, they're brought in as a trading uh, minority, and as a result, they are they own a lot of the shops and businesses and things like that, and are a target for resentment by a lot of poor people. and uh, And so, it's easy politics to kind of blame things on them. That dynamic was happening in Tanzania. Nyerere tried to tamp it down uh, with mixed success, um, but. Idi Amin just encouraged it and famously, you know, tried to kick all the Asians out of uh, Uganda. And Nyerere calls him an African fascist, no different from the white minority governments elsewhere for that kind of policy. And uh, eventually Amin invades a, a kind of a, a sliver of Tanzania and may or may not lay claim to larger swathes of Tanzania. I mean, Amin is doing this for his own internal rhetorical reasons. And, you know, he's not so different from certain current American politicians in that regard. Um, and, uh, and so with this invasion, Uri says, look, now he's, he's done it. He's, he's showed, he's given us the, the reason. Uh, so now we have the will, we have the ability, and we have the reason to overthrow him. And so Uri says, we're going to go, we're going to kick him out of, of Tanzanian territory. But privately, Nyerere says that, like, my goal is to get rid of him. And so Tanzania goes to war with Uganda and fairly efficiently kicks Idi Amin out. Um, you know, and this is just a war between two African countries. There's no other involvement here. Well, there's minor involvements, but um, and that there's a whole complex story as how that plays out that also needs more research. I think this is an I gave a nice little first draft. A lot of that section is based on primary source research. Um, but it's part and parcel of this crisis. And this war is fairly successfully run. Um, Nureri is very thoughtful about, you know, the fact that 
you know, if if we no matter what good we do for Uganda and kicking Idi Amin out, if we stay too long, they'll only come to resent us. And so he tries to pull out uh, as efficiently as possible after that. Um, so that's a successful foreign policy thing, but it it just broke the back of the economy because and uh, and so then by the early 80s, you have absolute um, economic crisis in Tanzania. There, there's a shortage of goods. Nyerere is trying to maintain a certain exchange rate, uh, which is impossible because the, 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 the kind of informal black market exchange rate is completely different from the official exchange rate, which creates all these skewed incentives. Um, and you have a period in which, you know, you talk to people and they say, yeah, I mean, children were going naked. Adults were wearing, you know, gunny sacks as clothing. Um, you know, at least in the rural areas, you could, people could farm and at least have their own produce, but they might've been short on salt or oil or, you know, these kinds of things. I mean, it, it was a profound economic crisis and, uh, and it did lead to a, uh, a sort of fairly short-circuited coup attempt, an attempt uh, on the government um, that the police state was able to knock down pretty quickly. Um, but the country is in crisis. And in fact, in 1980, there is an election and Urari, you know, who had talked about stepping down said, well, the step down now would be just, you know, like the captain of a ship, abandoning ship in the middle of the crisis. So he, he kind of sticks through the, uh, the crisis um, out of a sense of responsibility, maybe a sense of control, but he does step down in 1985. And at that point, allows a total restructuring of the economy and, a, and an abandonment of Ujamaa. And I think that was fairly distressing for him to watch. Um, but I think he was also able to acknowledge to some extent that it didn't work. Yeah. And, and, and it is interesting because in that, in sort of that, um, the end of that chapter, it's such a um, sort of dramatic turnaround in terms of all of the things that he'd been resisting in terms of externally imposed economic reforms that he um, then, you know, largely because of, of stepping down has to sort of um, acquiesce um, uh, to, and then, and then um, in, in a, in a strange way in his, um, what you call his unquiet retirement um, has to, sort of take on or to decide and doesn't have to, but, but takes on um, a role in these sort of uh, larger um, non NGOs um, as, as, as being sort of a, a peace broker among other things uh, regionally. Um, and so I wonder if you'd, you'd sort of talk about, about those, um, that sort of last uh, last ten years or so of his life, uh, where he he does in fact uh, retire, but but um, but not so much. Well, you know, so he he had he had long, you know, the, for ten years he had been talking about, you know, I I, I am going to step down. You're not going to have the same president forever, and uh, and so he does so finally in 1985. Um, there's a good a bit of politicking as to who will become the next president, and he doesn't in the end control that. The party controls it. And, and I think that speaks to something. He did create a system in which the institutions are stronger than the individual. And uh, and he was very, he was quite deliberate about that. I mean, I think ever since his first resignation, just after independence, 
He was about building institutions. And, and as much as he had a lot of control as an individual over the party, he always maintained all the kind of rituals of governance. The party would meet, the party would vote, the party would make decisions. And sometimes those decisions would go against his advice. And he would go along with it because the party made that decision. And I think, and, you know, the, the elections, you know, some, for a lot of those elections, there was just, you know, one candidate and it was Nyerere and you could vote yes or no. So that, you know, we wouldn't really call that a proper election, but it was a ritual of an election. And there were competitive elections, single party, but there were different candidates for uh, other at other levels. And, you know, uh, prominent politicians would get kicked out from time to time by the voters um, and so, and I think there is some good political science stuff that shows that, you know, actually in new democracies, just the mere ritual of elections, even if they're not totally competitive, is building up a set of, uh, a set of ideas, a set of premises for how government functions and the ex- expectation that government, that elections should happen and that, you know, a, a fair, uh, a, f- a winner should be declared in a fair way. And that this, this this is what's supposed to happen. And so that does happen. And that's that's pretty well established now in Tanzanian political culture. I mean, it, it's almost unimaginable for that any one person could take over that country. Nyerere's party, what's now called CCM, is still in control and is increasingly contested. But, uh, you know, but the idea that that this is this government can be in the hands of one person is is pretty much unimaginable. Um, so, so he he lets this happen, uh, or you know he steps down. the The party holds uh, some internal processes to choose the next uh, leader, and I won't go into all of those uh, details. But uh, the next leader and the party are they're all ready to move. And I think part of the reason they they don't choose the person that Nyerere wants is because they they want to make a break from Nyerere. And uh, so then you know they. There had been a, a kind of restructuring that had been going on in the early 80s under Nyerere that was a bit limited. Um, and uh, because he was, Nyerere could, I mean, it's part and parcel of that leadership, right? He's, he's not ready to move against the very uh, system that he had created. But the, the next president pretty much goes, you know, whole hog along with the IMF kind of restructuring. Uh, and... Uh, you know, Nyerere watches this and he watches not only a kind of corruption seep back in as, as the economy is privatized and these national companies are redistributed to people in ways that are not totally transparent. Um, you know, but a lot of what he encounters is not corruption in, in a kind of uh, strict sense, but is just the dismantling of the, the ostensible ethical system that had been Ujamaa. Uh, and so he's seeing now the replacement by kind of a more crass capitalism. You know, and like I said, if you were there and you watched it, I mean, you can you can bemoan aspects of the loss of some of the kind of communal values. But there's no doubt that Tanzania is at the economic level is a far more functional place today. Um, there's still a lot of regulation and things that are in place that I think restrict um, the business environment in ways that are probably not healthy, that are kind of holdovers from the socialism times. But you can see the level of uh, economic dynamism and and so forth. And it's it's the the main problem areas are the areas that are still government owned, like the power company, the rails, the railroad company, um, some of the other infrastructures that are still owned by the government are remain fairly dysfunctional. Um, so 
you know, it's it, it's something that Nureri then witnesses. And, and I think that, but this is part and parcel, again, the, the leadership. Part of his leadership was then the humility to say, to say, okay, you guys do what you want. I'm not totally with you, but um, I'll, ad, I'll admit, and he did in late in life after retirement said, you know, not everything went, went right. He tried to defend the Arusha Declaration by saying, look, maybe it didn't make us all rich. Maybe it didn't industrialize the country, but you guys wouldn't have the peace that you have now were it not for the Arusha Declaration. That's arguable, but that's the point he was making was one of, you know, a, a soft admission of its economic failure. So there's a humility in all of that. Even as he he can he does he's not humiliated. I mean he's he becomes more of a hero of the nation in some sense for being step, stepping down. But he's willing to allow others to uh, be right, you know. And uh, and I think that's that's an important part of that. And so yeah, so there's a process of of uh, you know undoing the socialist economy, and then there's the process of undoing the one party state. And uh, and he be he he's a he fully supports that. You know, and uh, he says, look, it's a multi-party state. It's like two knives. You rub them against each other and they both become sharper. You know, it's a great little phrase. Right. And uh, and so he he supports the idea of creating a multi-party uh, state as long as any new party has to have a, a national base. It has to have a base across the country. It has to have a multi-ethnic base and it can't mobilize people on ethnic or religious reasons. That's those are some of the principles put in place. And that's been successful. There's there's several other parties in Tanzania, uh, a couple of them which are uh, pretty effective, uh, and which may eventually come to power. That's kind of a post Nyerere story, but he does support this move towards a multi-party system. And as you said, he also then uh, moves into some other kinds of elder statesman type activities. Uh, there's a creation of a thing called the Mualimu Nyerere Foundation, Mualimu being his nickname, teacher, the Teacher Nyerere Foundation. Um, you know, that's he didn't initiate that, but he supported it. And he sat down and he wrote out the objectives of that organization. He said, look, if we're going to have a, a foundation in my name, I want to kind of define what it does. And it was modeled to some extent on the Carter Center. And I think Nyerere's post-retirement um, activities, uh, I think, are comparable in some ways to Jimmy Carter. Uh, and I think not just comparable, but, but modeled after him, that he wanted to be, a, he wanted to model what it means to be a retired politician, uh, both for internally, that look, a politician, you live your life and then you retire and you go back to your farm or you involve yourself in useful activities around the world, but you don't start to, you know, just interfere and continue to try to be a politician in the midst of politics. And, uh, you know, so, under the with that foundation, he gets uh, drawn into the negotiations for peace in Burundi just after the Rwandan genocide, and I try to document that. And again, found some good uh, primary sources that recorded the conversations he was having in the negotiations with the Burundian military leaders and so forth, and uh, and trying to get a sense of how he was thinking about that conflict. Um, the negotiations are still kind of ongoing when he passes away in 90, 1999, um, largely out of respect for Nyerere, Nelson Mandela officially kind of takes over um, heading up that uh, negotiation um, after, after his stepping down from politics in 1999. So uh, yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's Nyerere has this very rich life after retirement that is, 
is really important in the context of African politics because of the model he provides for what it means to be an ex-president. And uh, I try to document that and, uh, and, and pay attention to that in, in a significant way because that is part and parcel of his legacy. Yeah, and that um, sort of takes us uh, nicely to the to the end of the book. Um, again, a very a very um, concise, readable, but uh, but rich uh, but rich sketch of uh, Nyerere's life and uh, philosophy. Um, so, uh, Dr. Bjork, I'd like to thank you for uh, being on the podcast again. I really enjoyed uh, speaking to you, and, and uh, really enjoyed reading the book as well. Well, thank you, Mimi and uh, Muriel, and it was a I really appreciate that. And the chance to talk about it is always fun and thought provoking. Right. Well, we'll definitely have to uh, make an appointment for the, uh, for the discussion of your next book, whenever uh, that may, um, may come out. Do you have any um, current projects um, going on? Well, you know, I, I do want to work on now that kind of middle period and trying to make sense of the Ujamaa economy um, and, and related issues. And uh, I've collected a lot of material, but there's, there is a difficulty with trying to document um, things that were meant to be non-transparent, <laughs> corruption and so forth. And, uh, and, and I, I, have, I have some material, I have some context, I, I have some ways of trying to build that up. It's, I still don't, I have tons and tons of material, but still don't feel I have the material I need to make the argument. And so I'm trying to figure that out. Um, one theme I've been thinking about is and I've tried to do a little research, and I, again, I mean, it's so disparate that it's hard to do this research. But you know, there's in, in terms of thinking about culture and discourse, you know. So now we're getting into much more deep academic theory. Um, you know, the way we talk about things, the way we imagine things to work, and so forth. And I've I've given some thought. You know, in, in Tanzania, even today, across much of Africa, Peter Gashir has written famously about the modernity of witchcraft. You know, people still talk about witchcraft and, and kind of believe in it, you know, in some way or another, that there's there are forces that people can rally that are not fully explicable and that can cause uh, healing or harm, uh, depending on the the uh, the practitioner's intent. Um, you know, and there's regardless of how or why that may work, there's lots of theories of witchcraft as a normative discourse and so forth. Um but the way people talk about it is this kind of black box that it, it explains it explains effects that otherwise seem inexplicable. So someone who becomes rich very quickly is usually pointed to as, well, he must have used witchcraft. Um, you know, so like in this in this, uh, you know, de-socializing economy, when you have people starting up small shops and some are successful and some are not, you know, people will say, well, uh, you know, if he's not successful, well, someone someone bewitched me. Um, or if he is successful, either used witchcraft actively himself or herself, or uh, used witchcraft to protect himself from other witches who people people who obviously would have tried to undermine him. So there's there's this discourse of of explaining, and you know it's it's one it's explaining the inexplicable, right? You can't quite figure out why some succeed and others don't, and so then you know without sort of uh, some kind of elaborate microeconomic theories, you're stuck with uh, normative theories, ethical theories, you know, what went right and what went wrong. You know, and one escape from this is religious. You can say, well, God blessed me. And, and if you're a respected member of the community, you may get away with that saying, well, God protected him uh, and that's okay. But it, so you have this kind of moralistic discourse that 
in the absence of ujamaa, which itself was a very moralistic discourse, what replaces that? How do you how do you define social ethics in in uh, in the uh, era of neo uh, you know um, neoliberalism? And uh, and so I've been thinking about that, and so I've, about the idea of corruption as secular witchcraft. That in the same sense, it's this kind of black box. That uh, some of the some of the, the functionality, I mean, the, the the rationale is different, right? Corruption is a is secular. It's it's rationalistic. Like someone can, it's ex- if you could find out all the details, it could be explainable in a way that's not magical. Right? It's not. It, it's but but it still functions as kind of you can point your finger and say, oh, such and such a politician or such and such a businessman must be corrupt. And there's there's a parallelism to that, which with the witchcraft accusation. Uh, in in terms of its its normative force and the way it functions as a discourse in society, so I'm trying to think about that as a as one approach as a way of of looking at the way culture shapes policy. Um, so that's that's one approach, and you know, but how to how to get enough detail about both witchcraft and corruption, both of which are are things you do not talk about, is uh, is a challenge. Okay, well, that sounds like a like a very uh all task um <laughs> so um but it but it but but genuinely fascinating so I, I i certainly look forward to any uh projects uh that that come out of um come out of this really fascinating line of of, of inquiry uh, so folks you have uh, been listening to the new books and uh, african studies podcast and i've been speaking with dr paul bjork an associate professor of african history at texas tech university he is the author of Julius Nyerere, and this is part of the Ohio Short Histories of Africa series. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.